on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Fanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, Father, thank you for joining us. Nice As to usual, it's a, pl- it's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. We want to remind our listeners that this episode is free for the first 15 minutes to non-members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. If you would like to purchase an individual episode, navigate to the available episode of your choice and simply click the links below the player on the page. After completing your purchase, you will be emailed a secure download link. Restoration Radio episodes are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. If you are listening to our content on those platforms, please be sure to leave us ratings and reviews. This will help those who are searching for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our content. You can find the links to these two syndicates on our homepage. Well, Your Excellency Father, we've been waiting for, I wouldn't say we've been waiting to do this episode, but we've been waiting for what we're going to be covering in this episode pretty much all season and all year. And you alluded to it in last season as well, which is the Synod and uh, the horrible... Uh, documents, at least some of them have come out, and we're going to be examining them today. I want to start by cautioning our readers. I'm going to be reading directly from the documents, but I'm going to try to stop at each paragraph, because if I didn't, um, Bishop Sanborn might go into a complete conniption fit, just listening to the garbage that I'm, I'm reading. And it he is can so probably much only, garbage. <laughs> he can he can only take so much before you know he uh, he just uh, is going to go. So I'm just going to go paragraph by paragraph, um, and we're going to start with the idea of complex situations. Uh, and I'll I'll read it, and then I'm going to have his excellency comment first, and then Father Chicada. And we're going to be referring to paragraph 69. This is dealing with complex situations. The sacrament of marriage as a faithful and indissoluble union between a man and a woman called to accept one another and to welcome life is a great grace for the human family. The church has the joy and the duty to announce this grace to every person and in every context. She feels that today, in an even more urgent way, she has the responsibility of making the baptized rediscover how the grace of God works in their lives, even in the most difficult of situations, in order to lead them to the fullness of the sacrament. The Synod, while appreciating and encouraging families who honor the beauty of Christian marriage, intends to promote the pastoral discernment of situations in which the reception of this gift has difficulty in being appreciated or in which it is compromised in various ways. Keeping dialogue open with these faithful people in order to enable the maturing of a coherent openness to the gospel of marriage and the family in its fullness is a grave responsibility. Pastors should identify the elements that may favor evangelization and the human and spiritual growth of those entrusted to their care by the Lord. Thank you for not throwing up as I read that. Um, I'll give you an opportunity to respond first. Stephen, your discernment level is very good. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's as if the Catholic Church had never said anything about the sacrament of matrimony for 2,000 years. Why do we need to talk about this when it's in every catechism, 
when uh, Pope Pius XI issued an encyclical about it and talked about all of the aspects of matrimony that you know needed to be said, uh, it, it's as if no one has ever talked about matrimony. And as if there's anything new to say to the world concerning the holy sacrament of matrimony. And now, this is just the cover, that first part where, you know, oh, this is all wonderful and nice, uh, the sacrament of matrimony, is just the cover, just as Vatican II did. You know, Vatican II uh, always said something right first. Oh, yes, you know, this is all Catholic doctrine. Then there came the but, or the however, and you get the 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 essentially a negation of what went before, and that's what we're getting here. We're we're getting set up for what they're going to say in paragraph eighty-five, and that is essentially uh, if you're divorced and remarried, uh, you can uh, go ahead and and act as husband and wife and at the same time receive holy communion. They won't come out and say that in so many words the way I just said it, but we'll see in paragraph eighty-five that uh that is the the their intent so this this business of uh you know having difficulty and the fullness of, it's, uh, these these are like uh, the words that that make bells go off you know uh uh getting to the fullness of marriage uh, uh coherent openness to the gospel uh, these the, the translation is if you're divorced and remarried we're going to find a way for you to uh to be the like uh the liturgical uh advisor in the in the parish or something in other words we're we're going to incorporate you into the the life of the parish and you can receive holy communion and you can uh, distribute communion and do everything else that that the uh, everybody else does uh that that's the essential content here um you can see that the liberals or the leftists did not get their way uh, exactly, but they managed to uh, essentially give it a Vatican II treatment. Uh, and it was very, very uh, skillful what they did, and everybody knows what they did. The um, uh, What His Excellency said is entirely correct. The uh, paragraph that you just read is full of the different buzzwords. And the, uh, for instance, the idea of fullness of the sacrament. Well, you have fullness is a big Vatican II idea. You know, you have uh, uh, fullness of the truth, and uh, you have part part of the truth, or you, you have uh, fullness of communion, or partialness of communion. And this is the way that the the term that they use to try to uh, put together. Uh, contradictory ideas and principles without um, giving the way the game away entirely then we get stuff like uh, buzzwords like discernment uh, discernment is, is 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 a big big buzzword uh, where you're supposed to sit down and, and figure things out as Bishop Sanborn says as if uh, no one ever talked about this before uh, the uh, other uh, nonsense you get is um, the idea of dialogue. They're also big on dialoguing because everything is relative, everyone has his own story, you have to talk back and forth to discern. So you get fullness a couple of times in dialogue, and then growth and evangelization. Elements, you see. Elements. Elements is another word. 
Yes. So that's that's a Frankenchurch heresy. That's a buzzword from the Frankenchurch heresy. You know, now we have Franken marriage. I guess the brides of Frankenstein would be the the. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's Franken marriage. You keep giving me product ideas for Christmas gifts uh, for for True Restoration Press. A Franken marriage bride um, for Franken Church. <laughs> Well, I think that it's most appropriate that we're doing this on the on the uh, around Halloween because you know that's when we think about Frankenstein and the brides of Frankenstein, and this is Franken marriage, uh, that is, or, or you know, adultery that has been uh, fixed up to look like marriage. So we'll see <laughs> adultery in a marriage costume. Yeah, mm. uh, that's uh, that's it. Masquerading as something else. Yeah. Well, uh, those listeners to Restoration Radio may note that His Excellency has another show on the network called Popes Against the Modern Errors, and in it, that show, uh, shameless plug, you will listen to encyclicals of the previous pontiffs, and none of these, all of these uh, phrases that uh, His Excellency and Father were referring to, immediately, uh, it's alien to anyone who has any basic familiarity with church documents, that we, you never have ever seen words or phrases like this. Pastoral discernment of situations, keeping dialogue open, coherent openness to the gospel, elements that may favor evangelization. And those are the things that should get any good Catholic wondering what the heck is going on with this. But we can't linger too long on sixty on, on paragraph 69. We need to move on. Paragraph 70, again, Your Excellency, please uh, do your best to, to control yourself here. The pastoral care must propose with clarity the gospel message and must capture the positive elements present in those situations that do not yet or no longer correspond to it. In many countries, a growing number of couples live together without marriage, neither canonical nor civil. In some countries, there is a traditional wedding agreed upon by the families and often celebrated in different stages. In other countries, instead, there is an increasing number of those who after living together for a long time, ask for the celebration of marriage in church. Simple cohabitation is often chosen because of the general mentality, contrary to institutions and contrary to firm commitments, but also because there's an expectation of financial security. In other countries, finally, de facto unions are becoming more numerous, not only for the rejection of the values of family and marriage, but also due to the fact that marriage is perceived as a luxury for people in particular social conditions, so that material misery pushes people to live in de facto unions. All these situations must be addressed in a constructive manner, trying to transform them into opportunities for a journey of conversion towards the fullness of marriage and the family in the light of the gospel. Uh, Where do we start? Uh, First of all, living together is fornication. Right. Let's say that first. Yeah. It's dirty. You're filthy, telling me that's not an opportunity for conversion, Your Excellency. <laughs> uh, it, it is. Uh, that's the only word for it. It has absolutely no positive value or positive elements to it. It's just two <laughs> people uh, that that are are acting in a sexual manner outside of marriage. It's a mortal sin. If they persevere in that, they're going to hell. All right. Let's just say that first. And that's the way the Catholic Church has always said it. Uh, and that's the way, even in the Old Testament, it was considered 
the, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the pagans, and one of the reasons for that was that they did not consider fornication to be a sin or a serious sin. Uh, the Romans, you know, just had no, uh, all the pagans. Whereas the Jews understood fidelity in marriage and the, the institution of marriage and that fornication was something evil. So, to, you know, to put this beautiful thing on it, then all of these excuses why and the social and the economic, uh, you know, that's all too bad for them. But stay apart, live apart then. If you have those problems, live apart. So you can't get married. And and you can't go and fornicate and say as an excuse that that this uh, you know I have these these problems uh, and uh, the it, it just uh, it's not an, uh, fornication is intrinsically evil it is it is a uh, it is never justified to fornicate and uh, it, so therefore what you're doing here is is uh, introducing situation ethics that the circumstance of my social condition or my economic condition or this or that, this or that, is, you know, justifies this something that is intrinsically evil. Everyone knows that what is intrinsically evil can never be justifi- justified by an exterior circumstance, even if that ex- circumstance is very grave, even if the, it's very pressing. It, the, the, it cannot justify something that is intrinsically evil. So this is a, an abandonment of Catholic morality. Right. That's the only way to put it. And again, it's 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 more of of uh, it's more camouflage. Uh, that uh, what Bishop Sanborn said at the beginning is correct. That it is a fornication. And so we have uh, paragraph seventy. Uh, uh, you know, a whole load of verbiage that's making excuses for this. And again, uh, what it's doing is having established the different buzzwords uh, in uh, paragraph 69, paragraph 70, they're uh, laying out how to use the buzzwords as uh, an excuse to take away the idea from something that it's intrinsically evil. And that is they, that's why they require... Uh, so much verbiage, uh, so much ca- uh, uh, so much camouflage. If it's wrong, uh, it's wrong, and what they describe cannot make it right. Well, and I guess it wouldn't be a document Francis uh, wanted to be involved with if it didn't mention the poor. And we can see an oblique reference here to the fact that, well, it's because people are in these, you know, terrible social situations, and you know, marriages for the rich. And of course, this is. Um, this is silly as if no poor people have ever been, been married in history. Uh, paragraph 71. The choice of civil marriage, or in several cases, simple cohabitation, is often not motivated by prejudice or resistance against the sacramental union, but from cultural situations or cultural, cultural contingents. In many circumstances, the decision to live together is a sign of a, a relationship that actually wants to navigate towards the prospect of stability. This will, which translates into a lasting bond, reliable and open to life, can be considered a commitment on which to base a path to the sacrament of marriage, discovered to be God's plan for the couple's lives. The path of growth, which can lead to sacramental marriage, will be encouraged by the recognition of the distinguishing characteristics of a generous and lasting love, the desire to seek the good of others before their own, the experience of forgiveness requested and given, the aspiration to build a family that is not closed in on itself, but open to the good of the ecclesial community and of the entire society, 
along this route, those signs of love that properly correspond to the reflection of God should be valorized into an authentic conjugal project. You want to laugh out loud when you hear <laughs> stuff like this, because it's it's more of the same. Uh, that the uh, behind it, um, uh, behind all of this, is the uh, desire for marital relations without a marriage. And uh, that uh, that is what is uh, that's what's going on here, and they're making excuses as far as cultural contingents and you know, different paths uh, or growth uh, navigation. They're navigating, yeah, toward uh, marriage, uh, which is not even true. Uh, people live together in order not to be married. Yeah. In, in order not to have the commitment of marriage, in order to be able to walk away without a divorce. Uh, that's why, and most of the time they're on birth control. <clears throat> so they're they're. Uh, it's just a, it's just a pleasure thing. That's all. They they love each other and they stay with each other for as long as they that love, uh, that emotional sex love, uh, lasts, and then they walk away from each other. Uh, that's the purpose of it. And you know, even if it weren't, even if all that they said were true, uh, the it's not marriage. It, it is fornication. And it has no, uh, it has nothing to do with marriage. The very essence of marriage is the bond, the bond, the permanent bond, uh, whereby two people come together and and form a family, uh, and and uh, therefore, if the bond is not there, uh, there is no, <laughs> there's nothing to do with marriage whatsoever. The fact that they are uh, having sexual relations with each other on a regular basis has nothing to do with marriage. As a matter of fact, it is contrary to marriage because it is to exercise the rights of marriage without that bond, which is intrinsically evil and which is odious in God's sight. Uh, So, you know, there's no elements of marriage here or anything like that. It is just dirty, dirty fornication. That's all it is. And let's call a spade a spade. Not that that's one of my, you know, characteristics or anything like that. Not 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 known for not known for that forthright speaking. <laughs> yes. 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 My sense is they're making excuses for people who aren't contrite, aren't sorry, and don't even know they're doing something wrong because these people refuse to tell them what you're saying, and then they construe the best possible scenario for these people. And don't forget that Europe is Europe's churches are deserted. Right? They, there's nothing in them, uh, you know, except older ladies usually that you know might still retain the faith to a certain extent. But it, and so they're uh, trying to bring in all of these people who are living together uh, or who are in in adultery. This is the purpose of it. It's to revitalize Europe. Uh, and uh, and uh, to a certain extent, the United States too. I mean, the young people, most young people are living together. I mean, but they at least live together for a time. Uh, I mean, it's just so common now that it, it, you know when you hear about it, you don't even blink an eye. And so the church uh, has to you know conform to this. But you have to understand the liberal modernist mentality. If something is there, you have to conform the church to it. If something exists, 
if an elephant is sitting in the room, you have to in some way relate to the elephant. I mean, the, the, it is uh, anything at all that comes down the pike has to be in some way related to, in some way accommodated to by the church. That's the attitude of the liberal. So now that people are living together and living in adultery, well, the church you know, can't regard these people as bad. Uh, they, they have to in some way give them a, a course to follow uh, whereby they won't feel uh, outside the church and, and as if they're in some way badly characterized. See, that, that, that's the, the liberal mentality, uh, and that's what we're looking at here. This, this is so much, I mean, it is just dirty fornication, and they're saying that it has all of these, you know, signs of, of, uh, of, of nobility, uh, <laughs> love and other things, uh, generous and lasting love, uh, and uh, you know, it's all nonsense and garbage, uh, and everybody knows it, and everybody knows that this is just some flimsy excuse to, to put a blessing upon fornication, that's all. And it, it's not going to have the effect that these bishops in Europe um, would want it to have. It's not going to draw um, these, these uh, people who are uh, in this particular state into the, into the churches in Europe. Uh, they have, um, uh, uh, they've left, and uh, that's that. None of the changes so far that have been um, you know, heralded after the Second Vatican Council have uh, resulted in mass conversions to the Novus Ordo Church. Uh, none of them. So uh, this is another dead end for them anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's relevant to note that the state has moved more nimbly in the past years than than the Novus Ordo sect has to, to, to recognize and deal with the situation. I thought it was oddly timely today as I was preparing for this show that on Facebook I was notified that uh, some of my friends had uh, formally entered into a civil union. You know, normally it says, so-and-so are now married, so-and-so are now engaged, and it said so-and-so are now in a civil union. And I thought, wow, it's really not that exciting. (laughs) Uh, But they already have the privileges and the benefits from the state. Uh, And in fact, it's very easy to get out of a civil union uh, in France. And so they have all of the benefits of marriage, uh, traditional, let's say, church, ecclesial marriage. So what what does this offer them? So uh, even as you say, the gambit uh, of Father Chikata that that the European bishops are putting on this document, well, what what do my friends on Facebook need that for? They've got a civil union recognized by, by the government and by society. They don't need some adjusted pastoral, pastorally discerned uh, sacramental church wedding. Um, it, because, again, they haven't been told that what they're doing is wrong. They're simply being accommodated and told that times change, we change, and, uh, in fact, here's where you... You need to fill in the document in order to get that. The last paragraph in this particular heading is paragraph 75, and it sets us up for our next group of paragraphs. Particularly dif- particular difficulties are posed by the situations that affect the access to the baptism of people who are in a complex matrimonial situation. These are people who have contracted a stable matrimonial union at a time when at least one of them still did not know the Christian faith. The bishops are called to exercise, in these cases, a pastoral discernment commensurate with their spiritual good. That's probably the money line there, Father. 
yeah, the the idea that um, uh, I assume what they're talking about here is uh, uh, candidates for baptism or someone who shows an interest uh, in the uh, Christian faith who has not been baptized before. Uh, is that how you understand it, Your Excellency? Yes, it looks like a disparity of cult, right? You have a, yeah. So um, the the, the uh, so the idea is that they want to. Um, if, if someone is living in a uh, 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 sinful situation, uh, the uh, and expresses an interest in the Christian faith, the uh, traditional discipline is you say, look, you can't be baptized until you regularize your living situation. You have to separate, etc. But here, the message seems to be that um, the bishop is, is free to go on another one of those little discerning journeys with a, a, a person like this, and the goal of the, the uh, little tour of discernment, uh, if, if the bishop so desires, would be to baptize the people with a, a person without uh, regularizing his, his uh, situation. So baptizes him uh, in... Um, uh, if this person is, is living in a situation in effect of fornication, which you can't do. Um, yeah. Complex matrimonial situations, people have contracted a staple, that means they've been married outside the church, a stable matrimonial union, at a time when at least one of them, so it's, it's people apparently married outside the church mm-hmm. where one of them is not baptized. Yeah, and and uh, so yeah, the thing to do obviously is to tell them to separate until uh, they're uh, able to. You know, the the, the non Catholic is able to uh, be baptized, and then they can be married inside the church. Uh, so, uh, but you know, yeah, it's it's unclear. But I think they're purposely unclear in order to give such a, a broad spectrum of activity to those bishops. I mean, the bishops are called to exercise in these cases a pastoral discernment commensurate with their spiritual good. That, well, that, that means you can do whatever you want, essentially. Yeah. It's all code. Everybody knows it's code. All those bishops know the codes. Well, and the, the code was part of the strategy of getting this passed, just as it was at Vatican II, as you pointed out. Uh, Oregon is to be given the pride of place, but Latin is to mm-hmm. remain the, the language, but. Yeah, so, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Paragraph 84. The baptized who are divorced and civilly remarried are to be more integrated in the Christian communities in the various possible ways, avoiding every occasion of scandal. I don't know how that sentence can read coherently. The logic of integration is the key to their pastoral accompaniment so that they be aware not only that they belong to the body of Christ, that is, the church, but that they may have a joyful and fruitful experience. They are baptized, they are brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit pours gifts and charisms in them for the good of all. Their participation can be expressed in various ecclesial services. It is therefore necessary to discern which of the different forms of exclusion currently practiced in a liturgical, educational, pastoral, and institutional role that can be overcome. They should not only feel, they should not only not feel excommunicated, hold on your excellency, I'm almost there, but they should live and mature as living members of the church, feeling her as a mother that welcomes them always, takes care of them affectionately, and encourages them on the path of life and gospel. This integration is necessary for the Christian care and education of their children, 
who must be considered what is most important. For the, for the Christian community, taking care of these persons is not a weakening of their own faith and testimony regarding matrimonial indissolubility. Rather, the church expresses precisely in this care her charity. Well, I, I would like begin. to step in first on this one, Your Excellency, okay. if you don't mind. Right, okay. Go ahead. This business of accompaniment is that drives me crazy. Uh, the idea of accompaniment. Um, the um, uh, I, I'm a musician. I accompany the choir. Okay. <laughs> and the uh, I accompany the choir, and there's a, a young man here who is a talented organist. And last Sunday we had 40 hours. I had to celebrate the mass. It was his job to accompany the choir. And I went over the accompaniment rules with him, that uh, the good accompanist, uh, accompanist follows the direction that he's given by the director. He listens to the, the sound of the choir. He modulates his accompaniment and his stop changes and all the technical things he has to do as a good organist to follow the lead of someone else. So what is going on here is the, the, uh, that, uh, in effect, the clergy are being told that someone else is singing the tune. You play the accompaniment for them. And this is how uh, it's supposed to go in marital situations like this. And, of course, the idea is absurd. You have uh, the uh, obligation as a, 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 a priest to correct, rebuke, and exhort. Your obligation is to be a pastor and is to lead people. Uh, what the accompaniment code is uh, that, that they're giving you here is exactly the opposite. You're supposed to follow uh, someone else who is in a, a uh, situation that has good elements in it, etc. So in other words, the, the, the whole, your whole role as a priest with someone who is uh, in a sinful situation is reversed. All right. Um, they are baptized. They are brothers and sisters. Uh, yes, they are baptized, but they are because they're public sinners. They have, and living in mortal sin, they have uh, overcome the effect of baptism, which is sanctifying grace. And the Holy Spirit does not pour gifts and charism in charisms in them because they are in the state of mortal sin. Uh, the only gift or charism that they can hope for from the Holy Ghost is the actual grace of repenting of their sins, of separating and going back to their original spouses, or at least living alone. Uh, that, that is the, the one thing, uh, that's the only thing that the Holy Ghost is going to do for them. Uh, when you're in the state of mortal sin, you, you, uh, that's the only kind of urging that you get from God, is to repent and to go to confession and to remove yourself from the occasions of sin. So these are public sinners. Uh, their participation can be expressed in various ecclesial services. It says, "What that they're going to lead the the people in the in uh, in in song from the altar and distribute holy communion." Uh, and it is therefore necessary to discern, oh, that, that word, which of the different forms of exclusion currently practiced in the liturgical, educational, pastoral, and, and institutional role uh, that can be overcome. This means that they're supposed to be integrated into the life of the parish. That that Mr. and Mrs. divorced and remarried 
are 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 you know teaching catechism and and are part of the parish council and and do various other things and perhaps uh, you know the missus is directing the priest on how to say the liturgy that Sunday which is typical of Novus Ordo parishes she's divorced and remarried she's in the state of mortal sin and yet you know she is uh she's directing the the spiritual life of the parish i mean this is thou shalt not commit adultery did anyone ever hear that i mean you know the the uh, and actually receiving them into an integrated system like that that is to to make them part of the parish is to confirm them in their sin the church's excommunication of them in the past and by canon law was to correct them excommunication is considered a medicinal uh, censure uh, uh, by the church that is it is meant to draw people back from their situation by depriving them of their participation in the sacraments and other aspects of the church it is to draw them back just as if someone were uh, on a ledge uh, ready to jump off uh, you know, a 50-story building, you don't talk to them as if nothing is wrong. You don't say, you know, what would you like for lunch? You're going to ask, you know, the, the whole subject will be get back into the window and come out from that ledge. And that's what the Church is saying to people who are in such a, a hell-bound situation. And that is, get out of it, and, and you, we are putting these these restrictions upon you in order to remind you to get out of it. So what they are suggesting here is contrary to the charity that the church must have toward these people who have gone astray into these adulterous remarriages. Well, you're missing the point, Your Excellency. You're supposed to accompany them out to the ledge. You don't just uh, you don't just warn them <laughs> off of it. I mean, I, I guess I would suppose I would hope that at least they wouldn't let the divorced people teach the pre-Cana classes to the potential <laughs> marriage candidates. For those of you who are counting, uh, His Excellency mentioned this three-letter word. Uh, I counted 11 times. It's a word called sin. I haven't seen it anywhere in this document so far. So I'm not certain that... Um, Anyone would re- reading this document trying to get the Catholic position on this would understand what what sin is, whatever whatever that is. So, His Excellency is op- operating off of a pre-Vatican II notion of uh, of theology, moral theology, and we'll probably address sin in a later paragraph. I hope. Um, now, paragraph- well, well, one thing that it might might be good to uh, insert here, Your Excellency, is the normal way that you would. Uh, handle a divorced parishioner, right? And and uh, the the way that you would that uh, the church traditionally would have of uh, would have handled uh, someone, and you would uh, you would have certainly urged the person to repent, uh, tell them for the, uh, to uh, you know pray for the grace of repentance, to uh, uh, come to church, to listen to the sermons, uh, etc. To uh, uh, Try to live up to the uh, other obligations of, of the Christian life as well, and uh, offer the sacrifices that uh, you would make for this, uh, the grace to have a, a, a conversion and to do what you have to do. And that's the uh, that is not presented here, really. 
yeah, at all. So the church yeah. never slammed the door uh, in the face of these people. Yeah. Uh, the it was uh, the church was always trying to draw them back, and that's the way you draw them back is just exactly what Father said is that they should be urged to pray. Uh, they cannot receive any of the sacraments until they separate, but they should be urged to pray. They should do spiritual reading. They should listen to the sermons. Uh, they uh, they were not you know kicked out of the church when they showed up. Uh, to the contrary, uh, you you the, the priest always wants to bring the sinner back. You know the priest is not there as sort of a uh, an excommunicator of sinners or you know or uh, uh, <laughs> he's there to to draw you know sinners back but at the same time the church cannot in any way approve of either by word or by action something which is a public mortal sin yeah. the public is very important here this is a, a marriage by its very nature is public and and therefore it requires a public response from the church if a priest knows for example from the confessional let's say that somebody is living together and they're committing fornication but nobody knows it. See, it's it's an entirely private sin. He has to give those persons communion at the communion rail because he cannot denounce them from what he knows in the confessional. See, so the church uh, treats private sins much differently from public sin. But this is a public sin, and and it uh, uh, it must be, uh, you know, the, the church would would sin against its own nature and essence if it were to approve of this. You know, one of the things that consistently ticks me off about this um, uh, nonsense is that the um, uh, the propaganda that is contained in a document like this and in all the the, the um, uh, publicity surrounding it uh, sets up a some sort of a false opposition between the correct way. Uh, that the church handled the situations of these people in the past, and Christian charity, and, and the idea of mercy. And the, the, there's this, this parody that, um, uh, you know, you, you see in the press as if, uh, you know, one is standing at the door with a club uh, trying to drive these people off. When of course that is uh, that's absolutely not the case. So it's 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 the the propaganda at work that uh, we see here uh, to set up this this uh, false opposition between the uh, good and solid pastoral practices of the church in the past and what the modernists want to do, which is to uh, give approval uh, to these situations. Can I uh, ask for a pastoral aside here, Your Excellency and Father, because uh, I, obviously I'm not asking for any revelations of names or circumstances, but can you can you discuss in your experience, you have 50, more than 50, 60 years of priesthood between the two of you, your experience with, with the modern uh, the modern situation of lots of divorce or people with Novus Ordo annulments, do you find that people are able to, to come back to the church or to try to find a way to, to live prayerfully and without sin, uh, even if they're in one of these terrible compromised situations? It, it's, it varies. You know, uh, especially, you know, what comes up is the remarriages after annulments, uh, and uh, that's the most common thing. Uh, and we have to, we nicely tell them that we cannot recognize the, the annulment and that, you know, in fact, you're not married to each other. We do that as, as kindly as possible. 
uh, and that you know, so then one question leads to another. And I would say in 90% of the cases, at least that's my experience, they just say, oh, we can't do that. We can't separate. You know, we're married and we love each other. And they, you'll never see them again. I would say in 10% of the cases, uh, they really want to straighten out their situation. They see the problem and, uh, they, and they got into it probably in good conscience, I'm going to, to assume. I'd say most cases, you know, not all, but many cases, you know, well, the, the diocese tells me I can remarry, you know, so I went out and remarried. Uh, they, uh, but they, they do want to set it right. But I would say most cases they just walk away and say it's not possible. Yeah. I don't yeah, know what Father Chad is. Uh, uh, it's uh, hard over the years to put a, a percentage on exactly how that sort of um, things uh, thing works out. But I mean, I know of cases where people who have gotten uh, annulments, uh, and once you've you've explained kind of what actually went on, uh, they uh, will say that well. Uh, you know, we if, even if we we uh, can't receive the sacraments uh, uh, now, you know, uh, what we do, and you you urge them on the path of conversion and and, and um, uh, recommend the different things that that we've talked about, and uh, sometimes people will will continue to come to uh, church under those circumstances. Uh, the you have other cases where uh, people actually are uh, in situations where it's not publicly known uh, the their their regular marital situation and they will agree to live as brother and sister uh, and uh, then will be able to uh, after a period of time of success at that will uh, be able to receive uh, the sacraments, provided that there's no scandal. So it, it uh, kind, uh, kind of, of, of varies. At the beginning, though, you used to get people who uh, would realize that there's something really phony about the annulments. I remember encountering that many years ago, and they'll say, well, I didn't feel right about it either, Father. So um, You do so get a lot of that, yes. You do get yeah, that, that you know that immaturity, you know psychic immaturity. Uh, they realize that it's 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 nonsense, but um, uh, you know it varies. Uh, well, that, that I said this was a pastoral aside, and that's what they address in paragraph eighty-five. Saint John, Saint Paul the Second, so-called Saint John Paul the Second, offered an all-encompassing criterion. That remains the base for valuation of these situations. Pastors must know that for the sake of it, they are obliged to exercise careful discernment of situations. There is, in fact, a difference between those who have sincerely tried to save their first marriage and have abandoned, and those who, through their own great authority, valid marriage. Finally, those who entered into a second union for the sake of the children's upbringing, who are subjectively certain in conscience. That their previous and irreparably destroyed marriage had never been valid. It is therefore a duty of the priest to accompany the interested there it is, other accompany the interested parties on the path of discernment according to the teaching of the church and the orientations of the bishop. In this process it will be used for examination of conscience by way of reflection and repentance. The married divorces themselves how they behave themselves, their critical union and crisis if there were attempts at reconciliation, what is the situation of the partner? 
what consequences the new relationship has on the rest of the family and in the community of the faithful. What example does it offer young people who are to prepare themselves to matrimony? A sincere reflection may reinforce trust in the mercy of God that is not denied to anyone. Well, there it is again, this this discernment. Everything is relative, and that um, uh, the priest is to accompany. Uh, in other words, he's not to play any dissonant chords that um, uh, throw the uh, people who are really singing the melody uh, off key. So, so something like the Phantom of the Opera? Uh, yeah, something like that, <laughs> um, my, minus the mask. It's a... Uh, so, uh, you know... Um, once again, it is um, uh, covering the whole process in uh, jargon. And what they they did to get the um, approval who uh, of of the bishops who thought that JP two was uh, you know the the uh, most orthodox pope since Pius V that they 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 dropped in a quote Thank from him. So he uses the the discernment uh, the discernment word. So uh, they build on that in this paragraph, and uh, this is a um, uh, a word that, of course, is vague enough to uh, do exactly what you want. But they're content to take something from JP two, and um, who was a modernist himself, and and uh, then to to build on that to justify what they want. It's the same as as before. You you have something intrinsically evil that is a divorce and remarriage, adultery. It's against the uh, sixth commandment, and uh, it, it is to say that some external circumstance can justify this, uh, it, and that destroys all Catholic morality because when something is intrinsically evil, there can never be a circumstance that can change its evil no matter how pressing, no matter how valid that circumstance may be in the sense that, it, that it's a real concern, nothing can change it. It's like a rock. Uh, and uh, so this is a, you know, an implicit abandonment of all Catholic morality, all Catholic principle. You could justify anything with that. You could justify murder. Uh, you could justify stealing. You could justify you know, a, a mafia, somebody lives in the, you know, that he's... Yeah, He's got. He's discerning. We can not discern. You can take any immoral act, any criminal act, and put these same conditions on it: the discernment, the accompaniment, and and turn it into something that you can do. And and so the you know the the mafia godfather can get up and lead the the people in the in the responsorial psalm too, because he's been discerned and everything like that. You know, it's all under the same umbrella. It's all intrinsically evil act, uh, and and uh, so uh, it, you know it's just it, when you see this, or at least especially when priests see this, they see just a complete collapse of the of, of Catholic morality and what has always made the Catholic Church stand out as the true Church because it always said what is intrinsically evil can never be done despite whatever circumstances demand or urge that it should be done. Uh, and um, so that's, uh, you know, we'll see later on as, as we look at it more, that, that that's the underlying principle here. And they're putting all of these stupid words in, like, discernment. What, is, what are you discerning? 
your, your discernment is to look at something and consider something. What you're discerning is adultery. It's staring you right in the face. Right? That's the word discerning, and, and people who live in adultery, as St. Paul says, are going to hell. That's very simple. They could have made this, this, this long document into something quite short and easy. People living in adultery are going to hell. May, may, may God give them the grace to convert before they die. That would be a wonderful document. You know, the same for fornicators yeah, and, and uh, you know, other types. <laughs> I think, recall, there is a document like that. You're, you're actually, it's in, in Scripture somewhere, right, that uh, those things are mentioned, right? Yes. Uh, I had... Well, there's, there's the Ten Commandments, which is pretty terse. And then there's St. Paul, who has some passages that are very clear about where adulterers are going and where fornicators are going. And other people who, you know, people who do other mortal sins, they're going to hell. And hell is forever, and it's a place of eternal torment. That's, that's, that's Catholic morality, that's Catholic catechism. This is just a lot of coded garbage to, to uh, it's greasing, uh, you know, the, the adultery up so that it passes through. And... Uh, and of course, it's going to be delightful to all the Novus Ordites, you know. And this is another way in which the Catholic Church is is coming around, and it's going to make the teeth of the Novus Ordo conservatives grind more yet. And uh, you know, they're going to wring their hands until their fingers fall off, uh, trying to, in some way, make this jibe with the Catholic religion, which they say this is. You know, it's uh, but they know what's going on. But they know what all this stuff means because, yes. uh, 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 you know, they they understand the codes. They're part of the uh, system. Uh, they can read, and if they have the, uh, if they have somehow retained the uh, principles of of uh, Catholic morality or some sort of sense that this is wrong, they know exactly where it's going, and that's why they end up. Uh, as you say, Your Excellency, you know, grinding their teeth at it. But when you get right down to it, they know that it's it's uh, all of this undermines the uh, very principles of of uh, very simple principles of uh, uh, Catholic morality. Yes. Well, Father, you you alluded to the same thing that His Excellency mentioned. I mean, in a way, this is not just the dark chimera end of sin. I, I said that His Excellency keep mentioning this word that doesn't appear in this document, and I had to actually stop reading it because I knew uh, I couldn't finish reading this next um, without without um, Bishop Sanborn wanting me to say something. Additionally, it cannot be denied that in some circumstances, the imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or annulled due to various conditioners. Consequently, the judgment on an objective situation leads to the judgment on a subjective imputability. In determined circumstances, the persons find difficulty with acting in a different way. Therefore, while holding up a general rule, it is necessary to recognize that the responsibility regarding specific action decisions is not the same in every case. Pastoral discernment, while taking into account the forms of persons, should take these situations into account also, the consequences of the acts are not necessarily the same in every case. So, as a general rule, there is no general rule. Well, that, that is this is just another way in which they are are I would say profiting from the the general ignorance of the layperson. 
See, when, when you say that, you know, uh, that a sin is not, uh, someone is not culpable of sin because he doesn't know what he's doing or they're in good conscience, uh, of course that's true. You could commit mass murder in, in good conscience. You could, you know, it's, it, you could apply good conscience, in other words, to any sin, any objective sin. And in that case, it's not a sin. That is not what we're talking about here. We are talking about what is objective public sin. So if somebody comes in and they're divorced and remarried and they say, well, you know, we didn't know it was a sin, you would say to them, well, maybe you have nothing to confess but <laughs> because you didn't know it was a sin. But in fact, objectively, you're living in mortal sin and you must separate. See, so to, to bring in the personal uh, non-culpability uh, it means nothing in this case, uh, because that can be applied to anything at all that is considered a sin in moral theology. As a matter of fact, when you say, well, I was in good conscience, I didn't know it was a sin, if that's your defense, you are admitting that objectively it's a sin. See, if, you, if, you're ex if your excuse is, well, I didn't know I was doing something wrong, I was in good conscience, you're saying, in fact, it's objectively a sin. See, and the the question is objectivity here. Is it objectively right or wrong to live in, uh, in you know, in fornication or in adultery? Is, is it objectively a sin? Do you go to hell for these things or not? You know, to to bring in the personal uh, uh, guilt of someone, it really it's apples and oranges completely. Yeah, that's the the, the uh, typical principle, as we know, of the, the uh, post-Vatican II uh, so-called moral theology. That that everything is uh, ends up being dragged into the uh, realm of the subjective and uh, determined by the situation. The idea of something being evil in itself. Uh, objectively speaking, just uh, uh, simply does not exist. This nonsense is the fruit of 50 years of Vatican II's uh, modernist theology and, and what the uh, post-conciliar hierarchy has allowed to go on, what they've promoted, uh, the false ideas that they have, um, uh, that they have, have uh, 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 promoted and supported, and so on. And this is this is why we're in the situation we are now. Again, as we always say, it always goes back to Vatican II. The, the central error of Vatican II is the primacy of conscience over dogma and moral teaching. That's the essence of Vatican II, and this is the application of that very essential and fundamental principle of Vatican II, the primacy of conscience. See, I, I think I'm okay. Uh, in this, uh, therefore, the priest accompanies you because he, you know, you think you're okay with this, and uh, and then the the church will fix you up so that you can lead the people in the responsorial psalm. You can be the misgowlighter of the parish. <laughs> right, remember that figure in, in oh, from book. the book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In case you're wondering what book, listeners, that's Work of Human Hands, uh, Father Chicago's book, which is available at sggresource.org. Paragraph 86 is the last uh, paragraph, uh, listeners. You can only take so much. The bishop can only take so much. Father Chicago can only take so much. And, and I can only take so much. We have so thresholds. this is the last one. 
paragraph 86. I, I think in in the modern uh, colleges they talk about trigger warnings, you know that that, <laughs> yeah. that trigger traumatic experiences. And I think if we go beyond paragraph eighty six, uh, we're going to have to go to a safe place. I think we're that, getting triggered. That's part of it. <laughs> the, uh, as long as I'm accompanied there, Father, I'll be okay. Uh, the path of accompaniment and discernment faithful to becoming conscious of their situation before God. The conversation with the priest in internal forum concurs to the formation of a correct judgment on what prevents the possibility of fuller participation in the life of the church and on the steps that may favor it and make it grow. Considering that in the same law there is no graduality, this discernment must never disregard the demands of truth and charity of the gospel proposed by church. In order for this to happen, necessary conditions of humility, reserve, love for the church and towards teaching, the sincere search for the will of God and for the desire to reach a more perfect answer to the latter are to be guaranteed. I don't know what any of that means, Your Excellency. Well, the conversation with the priest, that means, first of all, it's on the level of the priest. Okay, it's not the, you know, so it's then in internal forum. That means the confessional or the equivalent thereof, that means in spiritual direction, and which means that the priest is not free to talk about it to anyone else. So that means the whole thing is hush, hush. Uh, so these two people living in public adultery uh, uh, come in and you have this accompaniment and discernment conversation with them and then uh, concurs to the formation of a correct judgment. What correct judgment? You're living in sin. That's the correct judgment. You have to separate. That's the correct judgment. You can't receive the sacraments until you separate. There you go. What else is there concerning that? But again, they're saying that the circumstances uh, can prevail upon the, the, the sin. In other words, that the circumstances can give justification for living together or adultery uh, and uh, and therefore, uh, you know, in, in, in when discernment takes place, then they can become the uh, the misgaulider and the the person that leads everybody in in the responsorial psalm, uh, fuller participation in the life of the church. Uh, that's what that means essentially. She can distribute communion and and he can you know blow up balloons or whatever he's got to do, and and that's uh, that's what they mean by it. That you can just be a, a normal Catholic, so to speak, even though you're divorced and remarried. Remarried. And the uh, the procedure, the idea, of the of of in, internal form, et cetera, was uh, one that uh, you know we've we've heard before when uh, it comes to the uh, the question of marriage and marriage and all this. That was the trick. That um, the uh, wilder, uh, more liberal types started to uh, pull in the 1970s. That uh, they would say that you you can uh, resolve this your your marriage situation if you're convinced that your first marriage was was uh, not valid. You can resolve it uh, in the internal forum. Uh, you go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And that's uh, that is uh, how it works with this. That's how it worked with the contraception. This was another thing supposedly handled in the uh, internal form. You know, you have all of this teaching in the history of the church uh, saying that it's evil in itself, 
but, uh, you know, a 25-year-old a lay, uh, lay woman can uh, decide that, well, she's discerning that in her own particular case, personally, there are all these circumstances, so she can't follow the uh, uh, church teaching, uh, even though it's, it's uh, the, the, to uh, contracept is something that, uh, that is mortally sinful in itself, and the response from the Father Chuck uh, in the confessional is, "Go in peace to love and serve the Lord." That you've you've uh, discerned, you've discerned correctly. So uh, it is uh, more of the same, and um, you can't, as as Bishop Sanborn uh, uh, points out, that uh, you know marriage is a public. Uh, the, it is a, a, a public situation that uh, uh, you're living in, you can't resolve this in the internal forum. For, for our listeners, we want to remind you, you are listening to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and, and as always, I'm, I've been joined by His Excellency Bishop Nelson Bourne and Father Nichicada. Today we've been talking about the pastoral discernment of situations, elements may favor evangelization, keeping dialogue open, Franken marriage, Father Chicada's least favorite type of, of accompaniment, the careful discernment of situations, and general rules that aren't really general rules. I suppose to put a bookend on this before we move on to the next segment, Your Excellency and Father, you, you allude back to the fact that this is Rider of Vatican II. Is it really possible that the Germans did this again? Vatican II. Oh, absolutely, they did. They came. There were there were reports of that. They were all uh, prepared, and uh, they knew exactly what they wanted. They yes, this is very very. Yes, well, you know they they are very efficacious people, <laughs> and uh, uh, they also their hierarchy is very very modernist, and uh, so they knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, the the fact that all of this passed by a two thirds vote uh, says that the that report that came through uh, at a certain point that uh, almost all the bishops are against it was pure nonsense. Uh, the uh, just you know even Casper I think collapsed on you know if that's the proper word for it on some big thing the discernment of of you know whatever uh, but uh, you know on some big thing he he went along with the Germans. Uh, and uh, the, I mean, the only thing that they had to give up was uh, a, a downright declaration that if you're divorced and remarried, you can approach the sacraments. I mean, that, that's the only thing they had to give up. Then, of course, all of the people on the right, whatever you know, you want to call that. I wouldn't call it Catholicism, but on the modernist right, uh, they, uh, of course, cave in through weakness because all of their principles are modernist and liberal. They just happen to be the caboose on the modernist train. That the locomotive is the is the leftist Germans, and the 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 uh, the uh, conservative modernists are at the end, and they cross the track at their point. They eventually just give in and cave in, uh, and everything's fine, and life goes on, just as, as what happened in Vatican II. And so you have the same thing. It's it's uh, the principles are flawed. Vatican II is the problem. It infects the minds of all of those people there, even the most conservatives. Even the well, Burke wasn't there, but the most conservative people that were there are infected with that. They cannot 
come up with a principle against this because they are infected with Vatican II, and this is the logical conclusion of Vatican II's primacy of conscience over dogma and moral doctrine. That's all it is. It's just unfolding Vatican II. The Germans certainly understand that. Uh, And uh, as as, uh, uh, Bishop Sanborn said, they are the uh, highly efficacious and organized, and uh, it is is a nest of modernism in Germany, and uh, was before Vatican II, and the situation has only gotten... has only gotten worse there. Um, the um, one um, uh, detail on what you said, Your Excellency, it was actually uh, Mueller or Mueller, the uh, CDF head, who uh, caved in. He was supposed to be the uh, great conservative hope holding out a, a, a against Casper, but he was part of the uh, German group, and the uh, the German uh, group. Uh, voted unanimously on uh, their 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 text on their proposition, and the reading of, uh, uh, of the press and and many um, responsible observers of the synod was that uh, the uh, bishops who had hesitations uh, about uh, some of the the proposals of the German group figured that, well, if uh, Mueller, who is the head of the CDF, uh, supposedly the doctrinal congregation, the great uh, uh, guardian of of orthodoxy, if he is in favor uh, and voted for uh, the text that came out of the German Group, well, then uh, there's nothing wrong with it, and I can vote for it too. So that, of course, was was uh, very clever. Uh, they left out the um, explicit approval of uh, giving uh, communion to those who, in effect, are living uh, in adultery, but allow you to draw the conclusion that you m- may do this. So this this saves that particular baby, and who knows what Bergoglio will do. Uh, with that, mm-hmm. when he issues his post synodal exhortation, which uh, mm-hmm. is supposed to be coming fairly quickly, I'm sure we'll get an interesting show out of that one. Yes, and you can tell that he was ticked off by the fact that there was sluggishness with regard to the approval of the communion to divorce and remarried. Married. Uh, he was uh, yelling at the, I mean, effectively yelling at the conservative modernists. For you know, uh, not going along with the program, you know exactly where he is. Don't forget, he's the person that called up the lady in Argentina and told her to go to communion, uh, yeah. and even though her pastor had told her no. So you know where he is on this. I mean, he's a radical, and uh, so this is just a sort of um, you know comedy that is, is that he's going through with this synod. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he comes out with something far more radical than than what this is saying. Yes. Hmm. Well, uh, now that we uh, run through some of the text, and I should credit the English translation that we're using from Chaley. If you'd like to go, listeners, and to look at your uh, at it for yourself, the Italian original. Now I want to go into into these texts, and we're going to start with Colonel Casper. Father Chicago, can you tell him what his reaction was? Well, I mean, <laughs> he said, that in effect, that we won. 
you know that that um, uh, in an interview they asked him about this, and again this is this is from uh, Rorate Chaley. Um, and uh, they asked Casper, and he said, I'm satisfied the door has been opened to the possibility of the divorce and remarried being granted communion. So uh, uh, clearly he thinks he, he has won on that uh, point. And he says he's satisfied with the work of the Synod, that uh, you know, it got sufficient approval, and that now Bergoglio, now it's up to the Pope, who's going to uh, you know, figure out how to apply this. So, uh, in other words, he, he sees himself as on the winning side, and indeed, uh, indeed he is, because remember, uh, in the uh, practical order, the way this is perceived is that um, divorced and remarried people will be able to receive the sacraments after this discernment process with Father Chuck, who, of course, will say yes. So uh, they, they, all of that is, is now in place. So Casper, uh, you know, should get the party hats out. And indeed, I think he has. Mm-hmm. And all of this will eventually be applied to uh, homosexuals living in their unions or their marriages. Or, you know, all the, all the logic is there. You know, if they think it's okay and, and uh, they're in good conscience, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, they'll... Uh, they, they, that will be applied to them eventually. I think it was a bit too much for this time around to take on the homosexuals, but certainly they could come in under the same umbrella, a rainbow umbrella, uh, that uh, of all of the logic that's, that's put out here. Exactly. Well, Father, what about the uh, the Shornborn? You, so you said that Casper said that uh, he won. What about the Shornborn reaction? And, well, and, and, and not to be confused with the Sanborn reaction. Right. For the record, <laughs> uh, for the record, Novus Ordo watches is for us putting uh, you know, some sort of uh, motto: uh, Sanborn, not Shornborn. But uh, <laughs> that'll be that could be a T-shirt we could sell in the gift store. That would even sound excellent in German. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Schoenborn is, is the um, Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna. And remember, this was the guy who wrote the Novus Ordo Catechism that everyone says is is, is uh, so conservative, etc. And has like the all Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, for the, the, for the, the Novus Ordo. Uh, yeah. So uh, this guy had a reputation as, as being conservative. He says that it's a in effect, it's a victory as well. He says that, that what you get from the Synod is not a general solution, but you get criteria for discernment. <laughs> okay? I hear that so, word one more time. I'm going to throw up. <laughs> you feel like your head is going to burst. So, uh, the, uh, but uh, actually, as an aside, though, discernment is the same thing as judgment, isn't it, Your Excellency? In Latin, at least, yes, right? Yes, I mean, the cernere, yeah. Well, I, cerno is to look at. Yeah. So, uh, the discernere uh, would be to understand, to see, to judge, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, and, and, uh, in an fact, act of knowledge. It, the shernimus is part of the, the formula for some sort of a dogma as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, but in any event, uh, he says he, he is quite content uh, with it as well, that uh, this, uh, in effect, allows the um, uh, 
divorced and remarried couples to sit down uh, with the, their uh, parish priest and to discern their way to the reception of the sacrament. So he, he said that, uh, and at one point in the interview, um, so he's asked this, does this mean that despite the messy situation created by a second union, uh, messy, which cannot be sacramental, said situation is not sinful per se, so uh, Schoenbaum responds, it is interesting to note that the teaching of the Church has already stopped referring broadly to these cases as a grave sin. At the start, uh, there is the grave sin of adultery, and this is often the case where there is an already existing and valid sacramental bond of marriage. But what happens if the situation changes over time, creating objective needs, such as that of looking after children resulting from the second union? So he's, he's told us uh, that it, it, it cannot simply be said that the new situation equates to grave sin, because honoring the new union and the new objective situations is also a requirement of justice. <laughs> this is why discernment is needed, appreciating people's different situations. So the thing is that, that I know that Bergoglio would call me like a casuist, okay? But at what point does the a relationship become non-adulterous? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the, the idea is so crazy that it, it starts out as adultery and then at some point turns uh, into something else. That overthrows everything. That that it becomes the object of justice because of some external accident to it, namely that there's kids. Yeah. So therefore you have this obligation of justice which whitewashes the adultery. That's the logic, is that if there is you know some other uh, virtue that must be exercised toward this wicked union. Therefore, the wickedness of the union is absolved because of the influence of this other virtue that you must have. So, you know, it could be mercy, it could be charity, it could be justice, or whatever it is. Uh, it's, it's the same old garbage of taking something that's intrinsically evil and saying uh, uh, some circumstance, some situation uh, makes it okay. Uh, that's as old as the hills. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's humanity's fall to to uh, justify things that are horrid uh, with some sort of uh, circumstance. And it's so dangerous because you can justify anything. You can justify the most horrid crimes with that reasoning. That, you know, because I need to do something or I have some reason or this or that. You could murder your grandmother with that reasoning. You know, I need the money. You know, it, it it just opens the door to to just a a, a, a flood of immorality, uh, and uh, because it, it really is no stop to that principle. It's situation morality. <laughs> to what you want. The uh, the reaction from the right. Uh, is the recurring, uh, I suppose, guest on our show, Your Excellency and Father, is Dr. De Matei. And his headline on Rorate, right, Rorate Chaley's story, and sorry, listeners who want to reference some of the quotes that Father Chicada read, that's on La Stampa, the Vatican Insider uh, segment of La Stampa. Uh, you can read uh, Cardinal Schornborn's comments. But uh, De Matei on Rorate uh, 
obviously uh, is sounding the conservative, quote unquote, conservative reaction by the Chicada. And what's that like? Well, here's the, the, the headline uh, from his articles, everyone was defeated and Catholic morality in particular. So Dr. Dumetay sees the idea that um, the uh, there wasn't an explicit um, uh, approval to homosexuality or gender theory uh, or uh, the uh, explicit approval of uh, giving the Eucharist to divorce and remarry. He sees that as somehow a defeat for the progressives. Uh, but... Uh, his the, the the really the gravamen the 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 real thrust of his article is that uh, the whole business was in fact a uh, defeat for Catholic morality in particular. So uh, he, he said uh, he did he, he did point out that Francis uh, really wasn't enthusiastic in his uh, comments about the final uh, the final document. Uh, probably because it doesn't affirm the right for the divorce and remarried to receive a communion. But Dimitri's analysis uh, is interesting. He says it, it denies the church de facto the right to publicly define as adulterous the condition of the divorce and remarried, leaving the responsibility for the evaluation of this to the conscience of pastors uh, and uh, the divorce and remarried themselves. So it's like a a, 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 um, uh, a, a, a renunciation of uh, of its duty that uh, that he sees, and then he uh, also says that the, the the final document of the uh, uh, synod uh, integrates well in this respect with Francis's uh, two modo proprio. Uh, on uh, annulments, uh, which the historian from the school of Bologna highlighted the significance uh, by saying, by restoring the judgment on annulments to the bishops, Bergoglio didn't change the status of the divorce, but made an enormous silent act in reforming the papacy. Now that's a, 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 a you know a, a very interesting uh, insight where uh, it's it's it, it, the School of Bologna are the uh, more modernist uh, historian historians and interpreters. Bologna or Bologna? Uh, uh, what we're trying to do is slice the Bologna here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what what uh, what you get is that um, it, it's it's in effect part of uh, Bergoglio's other program of uh, devolution of. Um, uh, power and the power of decision making from from Rome to synods and to the diocesan bishops. So I think that's a perceptive insight. Yeah, he's essentially making it. Uh, he's in the process of making it a, an Episcopal church. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a communion, just like there's an Anglican communion, and mm-hmm. the Archbishop of Canterbury has this power of honor, well, power or this position of honor. Uh, uh, so, all, but the bishops are really in control of their dioceses, and it, it, it's the uh, Febronian idea of the 18th century that the Pope should be a, just like the Anglican Communion, 
uh, a type of Queen Elizabeth, uh, you know, that he can intervene in a diocese that's really having a big problem or where the bishop is out to lunch or something like that. But the, that ordinarily he just sits there and, and, you know, oversees everything and is a type of, uh, you know, just general papa for the whole thing. Yeah, he's turning into a type of Anglicanism, but I always have to say it's uh, Anglicanism with bad music. So <laughs> yeah. at least at least in Anglicanism, you get good music. <laughs> well, this is called Francis Watch, and we really need to hear his reaction as well. We've gone uh, almost a good part through way through the episode, and we haven't heard from our, our favorite Argentinian, uh, Your Excellency. Uh, and we've got some quotes. Uh, the br- the church is a bridge, not a roadblock. Um, I don't, uh, that should be on a felt banner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, hanging in some Novus Ordo church. Yeah, yeah that's right. Sure. <laughs> yeah, um, a church. That's, that's the... A church with closed doors betrays herself and her mission, and instead of being a bridge, becomes a roadblock. Uh, what Jesus, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. The pontiff said that response is a call to overcome legal rigorism. Jesus's decree, Francis said, is an exhortation to believers to overcome every form of individualism and legalism, which conceals a narrow self-centeredness and a fear of accepting the true meaning of the couple and of human sexuality in God's plan. Right. Yeah, that's that's us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Really profound stuff, right? <laughs> really deep, deep stuff. Yeah, yeah really the uh, deep theology, of, you know, Aquinas type theology. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's deep. You have to get your, you have to wear your boots to to get into it, uh, Father. <laughs> you might be, you might need that. Uh, yeah, you wait well, out to the person. It's absurd. It's not even worth commenting on. I mean, the question is whether this is dirty, dirty fornication and adultery, or or not. You know, I mean, to call it the roadblocks and bridges and narrow self-centeredness and so all of that is just a lot of garbage. And and the question is whether it's fornication and adultery. Please answer the question yes or no. The the thing is, though, that by by using this code, you know, talking about all this this narrow individualism and rigorism and everything, what he's doing is he is uh, communicating to the uh, way that um, the what the synod uh, teaches, such as it teaches, is to be interpreted. So he is he is um, uh, not, as it were, as they would say, doing theology, but he is giving uh, uh, out a um, he's sort of setting a tone to things to say that well, uh, by avoiding rigorism, uh, now we have to proceed along this path toward the approval of adultery. Mm-hmm. So the but it's 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 coded. Uh, and that's why we get these uh, profound thoughts from them. By the way, you know, then, did you see what, I mean, just as a footnote to all of this, did you see what he said today or yesterday about, uh, I cannot condemn, I can only love? Did you see that? He said no. it in the Santa Marta. No. I cannot condemn, I can only love. And so I said to the seminarians, well, I'm just the opposite. I cannot love, <laughs> but I can only condemn. <laughs> Now, that would not look good on a banner, let me tell you. 
but that, this I, is one more insight into this man's mind. You know, so it, it, you can see it's on his brain that there is yeah. this section of the the right wing, the right wing modernists in his church that are full of this narrow mindedness and so forth, and he can't stand them. He does a very good job of condemning them. I mean, we have. Uh, been condemned left and right and again and again and called all sorts of names. Uh, so I guess we are outside of his love orbit. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, he, he's got this on the brain that there are people trying to block his radical reforms. Uh, and uh, he can't stand them. You can just tell. Uh, can't stop talking about them. He's, he's not satisfied with what uh, the left, uh, you people like like uh, Schoenborn and Casper uh, say it was a uh, tremendous victory, and what is what is read, uh, you know, by the uh, most left sections of the modernist press is a, a, a tremendous victory for pushing the revolution forward. He can't. He's not satisfied with that. No. He still wants to uh, uh, get the people who, um, uh, you know, resist this in any way, who resist the new program. Mm-hmm. Yes. He also uh, celebrates the flouting of the principle of non-contradiction in, in this quote. Times change, and we Christians have to continuously change. We have to change firm in faith in Jesus Christ, firm in the truth of the gospel. So we have to change firm in faith in Jesus Christ, is what he says. Uh, what is the truth? What is the message the Lord wants to give me with this sign of the times? God wants people to observe and evaluate what changes are unfolding in the world and to change with them without letting go of Christ. I suppose that would be like sort of dealing with divorced and remarried people. Yeah, don't forget, your union with Christ for him is a personal experience. So as long as you're experiencing Christ, you're not letting go. But, you know, that does not stop you from living together in fornication or in adultery. See, as long as you you have a relationship with Christ. that It's totally Protestant. I mean, why not yeah, the, join the Protestant church? That's something that we should explain to our listeners, that one of the things that... Uh, we've come up with time and time again, virtually every uh, installment of Francis Watch is his um, uh, referring to faith as an encounter, as a personal encounter. And his his, his statements are shot through uh, with that particular idea. So that, um, and ultimately the roots of it are in modernism, and that's why uh, he is... Uh, he spins out all of these these contradictory uh, contradictory ideas that anyone who had the Catholic notion of uh, faith uh, as here and the truth is um, uh, you're you're mystified by this and uh, but he he does he has this idea of the personal encounter that the, the the person is everything. That's the only thing that uh, uh, that seems to be important. And that's the only continuity is that you, yeah. you know, you're you're turned on to Jesus. Yeah. it's pure Protestantism. That's all it is. That's all it is. We have another quote here that's coming from the Vatican Press office on the twenty fourth of October. 
apart from dogmatic questions clearly defined by the church's magisterium, and sorry, it's coming from the Vatican office as quoted by Francis. Apart from dogmatic questions clearly defined by the church's magisterium, we have also seen that what seems normal for a bishop on one continent is considered scandalous, almost, for a bishop from another. What is considered a violation of a right in one society is an evident and inviolable rule in another. What for some is freedom of conscience is for others simply confusion. Cultures are in fact quite diverse, and every general principle, as I said, dogmatic questions clearly defined by the church's magisterium, Every general principle needs to be enculturated if it is to be respected and applied. The 1985 Synod, which celebrated the 20th anniversary of the conclusion of the Second Vatican Council, spoke of enculturation as the intimate transformation of authentic cultural values through their integration in Christianity and the taking root of Christianity in the various human cultures. Enculturation does not weaken true values, but demonstrates their true strength and authenticity since they adapt without changing, indeed, they quietly and gradually transform the different cultures. There's to see, as I do on some of these quotes over various episodes, I'm going to ask you, what is the Catholic Church's teaching on enculturation, and what are they talking about here? Well, first of all, the Catholic Church, I mean, uh, would, uh, well, St. Gregory uh, uh, told... Um, St. Augustine of Canterbury, to go into England and to retain whatever you can, and in the sense that if they have any natural virtues or natural, any customs that are uh, compatible with the gospel and the natural law, that those things can be retained. The Church does not want to go in to a land and totally overthrow the culture. uh, and and in that sense, you know, I mean, in a perfectly good sense, has the 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 sensitivity to 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 try to adapt to people's cultures, uh, the uh, but not in any way that compromises the faith. As a matter of fact, there was a famous case in the 17th century where a Father Ricci of the Jesuits got into big big trouble uh, because he was. Uh, doing that excessively. There was excessive enculturation in China and other places in the Far East, uh, and the Dominicans and the Franciscans became extremely irritated about it, and the the Pope eventually put an end to it. Uh, I mean, it all has to be regulated by the preservation of the truths of the Catholic faith. Uh, In no way can the truths of the Catholic faith or its essential disciplines, or anything else, be compromised or, or affected in any way by a local culture. Uh, but, for example, you know, Catholicism in Spain is much different from Catholicism in England, at least you know, I'm speaking traditionally, is that the, it's a very effusive and emotional uh, Catholicism in Spain and in in England, it was always very low key. You know, even the decoration of their churches, and uh, because of that, would be enculturation. That you, uh, I always say, it's like different flavors of the same ice cream. That that you're going to notice a certain difference of Catholicism as you go around to different countries, but it's all the same Catholicism. Uh, it's you know, it's different than Germany, it's different in France because of that principle that the Church wants to. Uh, adapt as best it can to different mentalities and so forth. 
but the modernists intended in a totally different way, and that is they want to actually uh, corrupt the, the, the church's teachings and essential disciplines and practices and so forth in order to, uh, in some way, make uh, itself more attractive to these people. So that's why you see uh, you know, uh, Hinduism in, in India being brought into uh, the Novus Ordo and so forth. Uh, it, it's just a mixture, a big melange of, of, of religions. Uh, that's what the Novus Ordo means by it, and that's proven by the by fact. I mean, that's that's the, this is what they have done, uh, and uh, this is the uh, you know it's just there. Well, I think of the different flavors of ice cream. I'm thinking of Father Chicada of the the baby Doctor Jesus that uh, is in the Saint Gertrude's uh, chapel. Yeah, uh, that's, you that's, know, that's you know there's a sensitive very... subject. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not a very uh, German, uh, Cincinnati sort of devotion, but uh, there, there it is. Uh, no, it cer- certainly isn't, but the, uh, you know, that particular devotion to uh, a Christ the baby doctor, uh, the idea of, of, of uh, uh, the, the uh, infant Christ having a special care for children who are sick, uh, the... Uh, that's a, a popular devotion in Mexico because of the nature of the culture in, in uh, Mexico. But, uh, you know, as you correctly point out, in uh, that might not be uh, something that necessarily would be uh, very popular in uh, Germany, for instance, and certainly not in England. I can tell you that. And maybe not even in Florida. But... <laughs> Well, but I think the stethoscope is is what uh, you know is over the top. Well, uh, well, the, the stethoscope and the little doctor bag, and then the um, uh, the doctor's smock that uh, the baby's wearing. But it, uh, you know, it's it it uh, strikes us as unusual, but it's it's characteristic of the the, the sort of effuse again effusive uh, Mexican culture. Uh, so uh, there. Uh, though is you know we're talking about different flavors of of uh, uh, ice cream and that's a um, I think that's uh, you know that's actually a, a very good analogy what Bergoglio is is um, doing what he is hinting at in um, his his uh, uh, speech about and his his mention of uh, enculturation is the accepting the values of uh, the culture uh, in the sense of their ethical and and moral values you know what seems to be just in one country is not um, you know considered just in another country uh, so what it's it's this idea of relativism and uh, uh, in effect, the type of situa- situation ethics. He's giving more signals to people mm-hmm. that he doesn't want to, uh, that um, uh, if the general principles of, of uh, uh, Catholic morality are not hard and fast, and these have to be adapted to different cultures, and that's what I am allowing you to do. We're still going to play, pay lip service to certain things in the catechism, but we're really not going to uh, sweat over it too much. You know, and that is typically modernist, the, the arch-modernist Loisy at the uh, turn of the last century, around 1900 or so, 
uh, he said, I accept all of the dogmas of the Catholic Church, but I interpret them in my own way. That, uh, that, that's, you know, so he can recite the creed, as, as Bergoglio said when he was responding to the fact that he was not the Antichrist or something. He said, I can recite the creed, and so can all of these modernists recite the creed, and they, they, they oh yes, that's part of the church's teaching. You know, the, all of that for them is untouchable. But then there's the interpretation and the application, which in which everything falls apart. I mean, he's giving out principles here for the complete destruction of of Catholic moral teaching, total destruction. And I think that, that that's something that uh, the uh, conservatives in the post-Vatican II Church um, do not really uh, get. Uh, they may, uh, you know, uh, vaguely sense it uh, that uh, there's uh, there's some something wrong. Uh, someone like Bergoglio, as you say, uh, can indeed recite the creed and pay this this. Uh, uh, lip service, but the sense, the census that uh, he has uh, guts all of these uh, uh, principles of any sort of meaning and, and uh, relativizes them, and that's the poison of that's the poison of modernism. And uh, the Novus Ordo conservatives have a long way to go, many of them, to. Um, realize exactly what's going on, A, and then um, admit that it's Vatican II, and that's where it comes from, ultimately. That as we always say, the the Synod and Bergoglio, that's not the problem. It's all ultimately a Vatican II problem. And the reason why they are incapable, the Novus Ordo Conservatives, of reacting well is because they are in, they are infected by Vatican II. They are infected by that plague of Vatican II, which which is pluralism and relativism of truth. So they can live in a in a, a church that denies the Catholic morality and still say, well, you know, I, I don't deny it, and therefore it you know it's all okay. Uh, they they don't see a problem with that. That it's a pluralistic, relativistic church, and while they might not like the left, they still live with them. They don't see any reason to not be in communion with them, and and they are infected by Vatican II. And until they see Vatican II as the problem uh, and as the source of all of this, they they will never do anything to really solve this problem. Well, we've had. Uh, the documents, we've had both the reaction of people uh, on the right and the left, as well as Francis's own reaction. The final segment of our show today is we're going to deal with some of the marginalia that we usually do on Francis' watch. Again, it's all related to the synod, but it isn't directly related to the documents or the reaction to the documents that we were talking about. The first uh, news we get is from Church Militant. Uh, which is one of these semi-traditional groups. And it addresses the the fact that one of the synod cardinals gave an interview to a, a group called New Ways Ministry. New Ways Ministry, not a particularly disturbing name, until you find out it's an LGBT, LGTB, whatever it is, uh, type of group. And the quotes listed uh, the 
the Bishop of Bombay, India, uh, said that uh, the church embraces you, wants you, and the church needs you. And hold on, we will find a way, find a way, uh, assumably, to include homosexuals somehow in an uh, active part of the church. Uh, and then at the end of this article, it says, and of course, it says, the faithful continue to wonder. And of course, the writer just means he continues to wonder how the director of an LGBT activist group condemned by the Vatican got press, cred- press credentials to the Vatican's synod briefing and an interview with the synod father when such are denied to legitimate journalists and media organizations. Well, we, of course, know the answer to that. They, they knew who this person was and they gave him the right to, to take this interview. It's not that surprising. Right. I mean, he's receiving transgenders in the Vatican. I mean, why are we concerned about somebody getting into the the press room? I mean, where a a transgender couple is received and gets a picture with with Berge. Uh, You know, this is small potatoes. One of these gets into the press room. (laughs) We know where, where Bergoglio is on this. I mean... He's been promoting perversion ever since he got elected. I mean, holding hands with the with the, act, the homosexual activist priest. I mean, we know where he is on this. Why is this a surprise? And I think yeah. this is the group that will not criticize the quote-unquote pope, if I'm not mistaken. They refuse to criticize the, the Francis. Right. The that, church that militant. Church militant. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, <laughs> that's true about the, the that. Michael, that he's the off limit. Horse. Well, you might people. you might of course lead somebody to the conclusion that he's not the pope. You know, <laughs> <laughs> heaven forbid. <laughs> uh, the uh, other thing is this: uh, um, uh, Cardinal Gracias is he is not like you know small potatoes. Well, no Gracias. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's not like uh, you know this comment was outsourced to India or something like that. <laughs> he is a um, uh, he, uh, he's uh, tremendously influential, and if I'm not mistaken, he was uh, selected to be part by, uh, of, uh, elected to be part of the post-Senate um, uh, Commission. Uh, he was uh, elected to that position, and he's uh, by, um, uh, by the Senate. So he's an, uh, he's an influential guy. He's like Mayor Diaga. So uh, he is his picked up what he's supposed to say, and he's delivering the message. I'm just waiting for Father Chikata's comment. If Maradiaga is the top banana, I'm waiting for <laughs> what this man is going to turn out to be. Well, I don't but, know. I think if he's an Indian, you'd probably want to say that you're you're going to try to curry favor with him somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> This is definitely true. I knew it. I knew we would get something. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't. You didn't leave us hanging like a bunch of bananas, Father. You definitely didn't. No, 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 no. Definitely not. No. Um, we're, we don't outsource the humor here to Bombay. Rorate <laughs> uh, reported on October the sixteenth a story. Which I'm I'm somewhat hesitant to discuss because maybe it's not a true story, but the the, the problem is it's plausible. You know, I would potentially believe it if it was reported to me, given everything we've read so far. And again, this is from Marate. 
During the daily briefing of the Vatican Pravda on the Synod, the Spanish language <laughs> spokesman gave an account of a, quote, deeply touching moment of the interventions before the plenary assembly, according to La Repubblica, whose journalist Anto- Antonello Guerrera says on Twitter that it's the story that made the Synod cry. As everyone knows, since yesterday afternoon, the Synod speaks of nothing else once again than of remarried divorcees. Well, then a bishop whose name is not said spoke of a First Communion Mass in which a little boy, receiving the host in his hand, broke it in two in order to give half to his father because the latter is divorced and remarried and cannot therefore receive communion from the hands of the priest. And, and everybody cried, Your Excellency. I'm, I'm guessing you would not have been crying at that. Uh, the, the boy would have ended up crying. Uh, the uh, no, well, it's a sacrilege, of course, and the we should weep. For, well, it's not even valid Holy Communion anyway, but in principle, it is, and in the sense that that's the idea of it, and uh, it would be objectively sacrilegious to do that. So the the thing to cry for is the mortal sin of the boy and the father uh, that uh, they have uh, condemned themselves to hell as a result of that activity. That's what we should be unhappy about, and uh, we should cry about. So I guess I would, <laughs> we would need to cry for them, Argentina, I guess, at that point, then. Uh, I think so. Don't, don't give Father Chicada any further opportunity. No, no, I'll just end up making ethnically offensive remarks here. You know, <laughs> what can I do? But no, this is, this is what I call an Oprah moment. Um, uh, some people may not know who Oprah Winfrey was, but she was this black woman who would run uh, a television show um, uh, uh, here in the United States and would do these emotional interviews with uh, uh, different people. And then you would have uh, the members of the audience crying at these these uh, different uh, uh, emotional moments that she was eliciting from her guests. And that's just this uh, sort of uh, thing that you have here. It's a substitute for thought. A- and uh, the uh, the idea that uh, one should speak about something like this or put any, any credence uh, in the, the conclusion you're supposed to draw that, well, because... Um, uh, this kid that gave his his father communion uh that uh, therefore we should overturn the sixth commandment you know mm. so, yeah. so it, it's, it's it is the the heading is unbearable <laughs> the, the the heading to the article is unbearable and it's true it's unbearable mm-hmm. well you mentioned oprah speaking of black people uh, we're supposed to be patient with africans on homosexuality we're told uh can you tell us a little bit about that father yeah, that was the um, uh, Catholic Herald. Uh, uh, one of the um, uh, archbishops who was present uh, at uh, uh, the Synod uh, says that, uh, okay, well, the, church, uh, the, the Church's message of dignity for all people will not change uh, overnight, so that, that we have to... Um, uh, that it takes time, it will take time for Africa to arrive at this um, uh, level, wonderful level of, of uh, culture that the West has now had. 
He said that negative attitudes in African cultures against homosexuals have existed for millennia. It would be uh, a bit deceptive to think that those attitudes would change anytime soon. However, he, uh, quote, he said, it takes such time for a call to be heard. Give the countries time to deal with the issues from their own cultural perspective. Be patient with Africa. We are growing. So, you know, that's the, uh, that's the application of the Bergoglio message of enculturation. So that, that, that uh, they, too, are to um, uh, uh, relativize the uh, moral principles that they know from natural law. I suppose I'd like to do engage in some reverse enculturation, Father, and bring some of those African values to the West, uh, because they seem to be resisting in the right way. I wanted to, to close our uh, episode, well, close the news bulletins, I'm not quite done with the episode, with, uh, with a, another point of humor, and that is reading Bishop Vallée's declaration on the Synod, and I just have an excerpt here uh, for some laugh-out-loud moments. As sons of the Catholic Church, we believe that the Bishop of Rome, the successor of St. Peter, is the Vicar of Christ, and at the same time that he is head of the whole Church. His power is a jurisdiction in the proper sense. With regard to this power, the pastors as well as the faithful of their particular churches, separately or altogether, even in a council, in a synod, or in episcopal conferences, are obliged by a duty of hierarchical subordination and genuine obedience. I know, I just don't know how I can read that with a straight face. God has arranged things in such a way that by maintaining unity of communion with the Bishop of Rome and by professing the, the same faith, the Church of Christ might be one flock under one shepherd. God's holy church is divinely constituted as a hierarchical society in which the authority that governs the faithful comes from God, though the Pope and the bishop, through the Pope and the bishops who are subject to him. I think he's saying, Ubi Petrus, Ibi Ecclesia. What, a, what, a, what an uh, interesting concept. <laughs> well, yeah, these are the people that go around and act as if the Pope doesn't exist. <laughs> or Bergoglio. In other words, they, they establish churches, they establish schools, they establish seminaries, they conduct Episcopal consecrations and ordinations against the express um, uh, condemnations uh, of the person they cons- consider to be the Pope and prohibitions of these things. They have a moment uh, They tribunal? act as if he, he doesn't exist. The only way that he exists for them is by a picture of him in the, the uh, vestibule when you come into their chapels and by the pronunciation of the horrid name during the canon of the Mass. That, for them, is hierarchical subordination and genuine obedience. That's, that's, where, that's what they mean by that. I mean, it is so absurd, it is a laugh out loud, it is an LOL. I mean, it is just so absurd that they could make that statement and that anybody with a brain could believe that they are uh, subordinated to the Roman pontiff, quote-unquote. Yeah, when has this ever happened? When have they been subordinated to the man that they they recognize as the Roman pontiff? It is. It's laugh out loud and genuine obedience. You know, don't close your seminary. Okay. Right. Uh, one message that we got. Okay. The the uh, letter arrives at one point. Don't do the ordinations. Another yeah. letter arrives. Don't do the episcopal consecrations. Um, yeah. the, uh, close down. Paul the sixth writes him a letter by hand, uh, 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 telling him that uh, uh, you're to close your operation down. 
And it, where's the, the uh, subordination? Well, I was written by the eve of Paul VI. And, oh, yeah, and Paul VI was said in that letter that all of the decisions made concerning a cone came from me. They did not come from my entourage, or, and no other person made these decisions. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's as it, this, something like this is as absurd as, um, uh, you know, uh, Bergoglio uh, saying that we're, uh, we are, uh, you know, uh, adhering to the Church's traditional teaching on the indissolubility of marriage. And that's what this, this is about and everything. It's the same sort of uh, same sort of contradiction uh, that you get. Only the, the, the with Bergoglio and company, that this um, uh, contradiction is uh, only become manifest to uh, people over uh, you know the course of maybe three years. But with the question of the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth, they've been conducting this this exercise in cognitive dissonance. Talk about accompaniment. Um, uh, since what, 1975, right? 1974, they were suppressed. Yeah. So uh, a cone the... was closed, and and they were suppressed. I remember it. I was there. Yeah. 1974, and uh, so that means for 41 years, they have been acting as though there is no pope. But then they say this. Uh, well, I and, think that'd be a great that'd be a great T-shirt, Your Excellency. You'd say Society of Saint Pius the Tenth obliged by a duty of hierarchical subordination and genuine obedience since 1975. And you just put that on the back of a T-shirt. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, did the up live up to your expectations, Your Excellency and Father, after all of this buildup that we've had over the last 12 months? Did, was it what you, did it deliver for you? What, what are you referring to? The results of the Senate. What you thought was going to be said and, and how... Uh, it, was it was hard to say. I mean, in the, you know, there was so much talk about you know, pro and con and all. It was really hard to say what they were going to do. Uh, and I, uh, I think, though, that they accomplished, the, the, the left accomplished what it wanted to do. I don't think Bergoglio was particularly happy with the outcome. I think he wanted something much more radical but I, the left accomplished what they set out to do. Uh, and, and so, you know, and, uh, I think that that was a, a victory for them. In terms of my own perception of it, uh, I uh, think that uh, on this particular point, that uh, they did what I expected uh, they would do pay the usual lip service to the principles, and then in, in a practical way, in a way that would be acceptable to, uh, you know, the, the few doctrinal conservatives who, who were left, who, who were uh, present at the Synod, uh, that uh, they would, in the practical order, get what they want. And uh, I would say that in my own case, it's it's something that uh, something that I expected, as, especially on this this marriage issue, because it's it's what Bergoglio has been uh, going on about, uh, you know, ever since his election that something had to be done, and he he got it, and now the next step is for him to um, uh, spell out in the practical order what this means, and I think that'll be very interesting. The, the left knows 
how to please the right-hand modernists, the right-wing modernists. They know what to say in such a way that the right-wingers go away and do nothing. They learned it at Vatican II. They have done it again and again since Vatican II. They know how to get what they want and and leave the right-wing just uh, uh, inert. That's all, the only word for it. Well, I'm I'm sure that things are certainly not inert down at the seminary. What's what's going on down there, Your Excellency? You always ask that. And there's nothing to tell except, let's see, the courses are going along as, as planned. Uh, I'm teaching church history. We're doing a very important and, and interesting uh, part of it, and that is we're, we're doing the Americanism uh, in the 1890s, and uh, we're going. We're about to start the Modernist period in the in the reign of Saint Pius X. So, uh, it's uh, I'm reading a lot, of course, because I have to teach it. Uh, the the no one you never learn so much as when you have to teach it. <laughs> That's an old thing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, so I'm reading all these books. And I'm uh, I'm really uh, informing myself on the period. Uh, I knew you know something about it, but uh, there's a lot more coming out. And uh, so that, that's very interesting for me. It's a lot of work, but it's interesting for me. And I think the seminarians are finding it interesting because they are seeing the background of modernism and how all this took place. That this was already very very strong in the latter part of the 19th century, and that. Um, all it took was a few weak popes uh, to let the thing grow and turn into a Roncalli and a Paul VI. So uh, that's interesting to see it. Here at St. Gertrude's, we had um, uh, this past weekend, we had our uh, 40 hours devotion, uh, 40 hours adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. That went uh, uh, very well. We had uh, opening on a uh, Friday night, an opening mass, and then a uh, 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 soup supper afterwards, and adoration continued all all night, and closed uh, finally in the evening of of uh, the next day, and then uh, began again in the morning of Sunday. We had masses before the Blessed Sacrament exposed, which is always um, uh, very good and uh, very inspiring for people, and, and a great aid to their devotion and opportunity for them to. Uh, come at a door, and then we had the closing of that and the uh, the procession on Sunday evening. So it's, uh, that is always a, a, a lot of work, but it's it's one of the high points of uh, our liturgical year here at St. Gertrude the Great. This coming week uh, is, um, weekend is uh, All Saints, and we'll have a, a big high mass on All Saints Day, and we will be... Uh, uh, the uh, children will be um, the grade school children will be dressed up as uh, different saints, and they have a little presentation afterwards in the church hall, which is always very interesting. They have very uh, creative uh, costumes. Uh, the following weekend, I'll be going down to the um, uh, seminary for a few days to uh, uh, inflict my canon law course on the, on the poor seminarians. And, uh, and then uh, toward the end of the month, on the Feast of St. Cecilia here, we will uh, be doing the uh, blessing of uh, our organ, which uh, we got earlier in the year, and we will be having a, a solemn blessing of, of the organ. We'll be doing a, a special Mass that day since it's the Feast of St. Cecilia, a, uh, the uh, Missa Bravis in F by Gabrielli. And after the... Um, 
a blessing of the organ, our young organist will um, uh, play the Dorian Toccata of uh, J.S. Bach, which is one of the masterpieces, difficult masterpieces of the organ repertory. So there's a lot going on, and we um, encourage you, if uh, you're not able to get to Mass on Sunday, to view our uh, live webcasts on the Internet. Well, and this episode is going to come out before All Souls Day, um, Father, so can you tell people how they can participate on SGG Resources? Uh, yes, you uh, can uh, submit the names of uh, the departed that you'd uh, like to be prayed for uh, via SGG Resources. You can send the, the names in, and uh, all three Masses on um, the uh, All Souls Day will uh, be offered for the repose of their souls. Uh, we have a, a number of other Masses that will be offered uh, for the uh, Holy Souls enrolled throughout the month of November as well. So you can do that through SGG Resources, and you can even watch the uh, uh, Masses uh, on our Internet site there. Well, uh, Your Excellency and Father, as always, thanks so much for your time. Uh, we had quite a lot to cover today, and as always, um, you were patient, and, uh, and Your Excellency, particularly, thank you for holding back on, on any uh, sort of vomiting feelings you might have had as I, I worked through the first part of today's episode. Yes, uh, I did my best. Well, Stephen, you've learned how to accompany him very well, I would say. <laughs> yes. Yes. So... <laughs> Thank you very much, Max, and Dad, Father. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure discerning with you. <laughs> God <laughs> bless you. <laughs> As always, if you have any questions for His Excellency or Father, you can write to FrancisWatch at TrueRestoration.org, and we'll do our best to answer those questions in a future broadcast. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I'm Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. Mm -hmm.